It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. Well, guys, why don't we start out with prayer and just set this time in God's hands. Father, we just submit to you. We declare that without you, we are nothing. We cannot accomplish uh, this thing called living life for the glory of, uh, of our God without our God. And so we invite our God to come and to dwell within us, to move within us, to be our very being, to do the work in us and through us. Lord, we celebrate the cross. We celebrate the life of Jesus. We celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit by embracing them, by cherishing them, by believing. Lord, I pray that we would be responsive today, that we would interact with these truths, that we would not just have them be head knowledge, but that they would be life-altering realities, that we would give ourselves to them. In the name of Christ, amen. It was interesting. We had a workout in this very room uh, this morning. So on Mondays and Wednesdays, we have something called In the Core, ITC workout. And uh, by the way, my core is rather sore, that is sort of a little poem there, uh, from Monday's workout, which I have never had so many V-ups that I've ever done in one morning in my life. So I'm still feeling the repercussions of that when we had to lay down on a mat and sort of lift ourselves up this morning. It's like, ah! But uh, so and this is telling a little on, on Nathan but, you know, Nathan gave that great message yesterday on Ephesians, right? If you guys didn't hear it, you need to hear it. That was fantastic. And uh, he talked about the parachute and what's the good of, like, pointing at the parachute as you're falling down the parachute's, like, falling next to you. The key is, you know, faith isn't just knowing that that parachute could save you. It's putting it on. And so we had, um, uh, what are those called? The, they're like dumbbells, but they're kettlebells. Uh, so we had a kettlebell type of workout today, which is really not that, that fun. And... Uh, what was it? Someone's, oh, Arnie said something like, this burns fat. Uh, you know, kettlebells burn fat. Isn't that, was that, the, was that the quote? And then Nathan's like, I should just take it to bed with me at night. And, uh, and it was like the classic illustration of how modern Christianity works. They think that if they just sort of cuddle up with the truth as opposed to exercise with the kettlebell, that they will see the effects of that kettlebell. And so Jesus saves, but you have to exercise this reality of Jesus. So I just want that to be a lesson to, especially Nathan uh, there. It's funny because that's like one of Nathan's key points of teaching. <laughs> he always has. Uh, all right, so this is, oh, I love this. Uh, this, this message, 100% man, 100% God. Now, for those of you that have been around Christianity, that should immediately trigger some thoughts. 100% man, 100% God. What's that? Well, on Monday, which was the, I think, the third installment in our series of the Glossary of the Gospel, and this is our fourth, we talked about the prominence or the position of the word, and I introduced you to the idea of what a word is, and that it is a revelation of that which is invisible. So I have an invisible thought inside of my head. You don't know what it is, but I clothe it in a word, and I shoot it out through my, my mouth, and it goes flying through the air, and then inside your ear canal, you unpack it inside of your brain, and suddenly you know, because of a word, that which is invisible inside of me. And so God who is invisible, by the way, it says no man has seen him at any time, has revealed himself, has conveyed who he is. How? Via a word. 
That word is Jesus, very specifically, but also it's the text of Scripture. So before Jesus came along, he gave us his word. So the Holy Spirit carried along the authors of this book to actually write these words, which are what we would term as Christians the word of God. This book is written by who? And you could say, well, it's written by God. And you'd be right. But you could also say, as an answer, who wrote this book? You could say, a whole bunch of men, over 40 men wrote this book, and you'd be right. This book is 100% man, written, if you want to say it that way, and 100% God. How, how can something be 100% man and 100% God at the same time? And yet that's the mystery of godliness, right there. It is a mystery of how God intersects this world and how he intends to showcase his life in and through these carrying devices. This is a carrying device. It's a book. And it carries the divine life of Christ. You can actually know Christ by believing what is inside this book. But then we have the person of Jesus, who is also known as the Word of God. He is the carrying vehicle of that which is invisible. And he is 100% man and 100% God, just like this book. You see, the Word of God in text reveals the Word of God in person. And what happened on that cross, the word of God in action, when the word of God in text was fulfilled in the word of God in person, Jesus, and then that man did precisely what this book says he would do. I mean, it goes into great details. 750 years before he died, it describes in Isaiah 53 how this one will die. He will be numbered among criminals. He won't die alone. One, two, three. He will be in, in, in Psalm 22, a thousand years before, it describes him being, his hands and his feet being pierced. They will divide his garments among them, cast lots for his clothing. Whoa! In other words, this book is divine. And then a thousand, 750 years after these statements are being made, we are seeing the fulfillment, not just in the man, but in the action of the cross. The word of God in text reveals the word of God in person. The word of God in person perfectly fulfills all of scripture with what he does on that cross. And what he does on that cross is he is a man, though he is God, bearing the sin of the world as a priest in our place, but he's a man without sin. He is the last Adam. He is the priest as Adam should have been in the garden. I don't know if you guys have ever thought about this, but what would have happened if Eve had come to Adam in the garden with this luscious fruit, with the, you know, the juice of the fruit dribbling down her chin, and said, Adam, you gotta try it. And Adam had backed away and said, Eve, what did you do? Adam, God wasn't telling us all. The, the serpent, the serpent, you were talking to the serpent? Yes, but he had some good things to say. And, and if you eat this, your eyes will be opened. Imagine if Adam had backed away. And Eve is like, Adam, and, and Adam is like, Eve. And they're like parting ways, and Adam bumps into God. And God, God says, Adam, God, my wife is, I know, she has eaten of the fruit. Oh, God, you said that she must, and then God finishes the sentence, she must die. Well, God, is there any other way? Listen, listen closely. Well, Adam, you die for her. Okay, now imagine if Adam without sin, had borne that sin in the beginning. In other words, this is the perfect man. This is the way that God intended a man to behave. But Adam failed. It's called the fall. It's when sin is entering the world, the corruption of 
the world in which we live is unfurling before us. Jesus comes and rectifies it all. This one man, who is a man, he is, he was born of a woman, the same way we are, but different. You see, now I'm going to give you a quick biology lesson. To make a person, a boy or a girl, you need a boy and a girl. And then kaboom! When those two come together, you have life, right? That was a quick biology lesson. Was that a good one? Uh, that was pretty powerful. And, and if any of you on the live stream are understanding why I was, uh, gave such a quick biology lesson, if you saw the, uh, the makeup or the demographics of our audience, you would understand. Uh, so when you have a man and a woman and then kaboom, it's an amazing thought, but in Mary, which is where Jesus was born, he was born inside of Mary, there was no father, there was no man, but there was. Do you know who it was? It was God. And so you have Jesus who says he is the son of God, and guess what? He's right. His father is in fact God. He is the son of God. Yes, his mother is Mary, but his dad is God. That's different than all of us, okay? All of us have a father and a mother, and yet we're all of us are like, yeah, but I'm a son. I'm a daughter of God. You're right, but by adoption. You see, Jesus is, in fact, 100% a man and 100% God. And that's the great mystery. It is an extraordinary understand to unfold. And now the reason I'm bringing this up, because remember what the glossary of the gospel series is. The glossary of the gospel series is the introductory steps forward for a new Christian. If you were just coming into the faith, what would you need to know? Well, and that's what I'm laying out. And I'm giving key words so that we understand as Christians what are the most essential ingredients to growing up unto maturity. But it's also useful for those of us that are leading people to the Lord so we can effectively disciple. We need to know what the basics are so that we can effectively pass them along. This is a basic of basics. Who Jesus is is of the utmost importance because, for instance, the Mormons talk about Jesus. You know, the Islam has Jesus as a, as a prophet. You see, whenever you diminish who Jesus is, there's different ways that that happens. For instance, the Mormons exalt who man is and by so doing diminish who Jesus is. The Muslims diminish who Jesus is, and they remove deity. Deity means godness. When you remove the godness from Jesus Christ, what you're usually doing is that godness is going somewhere, and so it usually goes to us. We, we love to exalt ourselves, and so we oftentimes will diminish Jesus so that we can be higher. You see, if he really is God, that means what he says is God speaking. What he did was God doing. And when he says, pick up your cross and follow, whoa, that's a God command. We have God Almighty who has come to this earth to rescue us. And he has commanded us to do various things so that our life could be rescued. He says, I need you to repent and believe. God has spoken. God has come. Isn't that just an amazing thought? I haven't even gotten started here. Boy, I better get going. Jesus so you'll notice the variations when you study scripture. This is just the tip of the iceberg, by the way. Jesus Christ will be said. The Christ, Christ the Lord, Lord Jesus, Lord. Same guy. 
It's all the same. You see, when we use the term Christ, I, I talked about this in the last session, that's Christos in the Greek or Messiah in the Hebrew. And so what we're going to have is this idea of the anointed one, the one on whom the Holy Spirit is, the one who is going to fulfill all prophecy, the one who will remove the iniquity of the land in one day, the one who will be born in Bethlehem of a virgin girl, the one who will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the one whose hands and feet will be pierced, the one who will die but rise again on the third day, the one whose body will not see any deterioration or corruption. That one. That's the Christ. And so when we take this Jesus man and we associate him with that Christ term, we are saying Jesus, though he was a man, was that Christ. He is, in fact, the one whose goings forth are from of old and everlasting, the one who is before Abraham because he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're not just talking about a guy named Joe or Bill down the street. We're talking about one man in all of history that fulfilled it all. And so the Christ he is the one. He is the one that did it. So this is a, a paramount terminology in and amongst uh, the Jewish people. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Bible can be summed up in that. It, it, you know, when you're working a compass, you have to know your north, your true north. And so you're going to fix your north. And this is the north of scripture. The north of all scripture is Jesus and what Jesus did. Jesus, the man, and what that man did on that cross. That is the center. So when Paul carried this message unto the Gentiles, he was making sure that this was the paramount center. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So listen to the message of the early church. This is what they were doing. In the book of Acts, now we have the, this whole new this period of time in history that is unfolding, the period of the church. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach. Now imagine you didn't see the finishing words there. So if you're listening to this on audio, you don't know what, what's happening. You're just like hearing it up to that point. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach, dot, dot, dot. Well, what did they teach and preach back then? Wouldn't that be interesting? Because I'd have a hunch we should probably be teaching and preaching that today. But some people, it's soteriology, it's the science of salvation, so it's eschatology, it's morality. We have all sorts of different things that we teach and preach, and not, they're not necessarily wrong. It's just that you need to recognize there is one center, and if you deviate from it, you miss the whole point of this thing known as Christianity. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. So Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, said it this way. This is when he first took over the pulpit of his church that he is famous for. He's, con he's considered one of the most famous preachers of all time. So he's taking over the pulpit of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And this is in his first sermon. In the days of Paul, it was not difficult at once in one word to give the sum and substance of the current theology. It was Christ Jesus. Had you asked any one of those disciples what he believed, he would have replied, I believe Christ. If I am asked to say what is my creed, I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. The body of divinity to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is Christ Jesus, who is the sum and substance of the gospel, who is in himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth, the all-glorious personal embodiment of the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus. Jesus, when he came to this earth, made a very specific statement. And John the Apostle is going to bring that statement to the surface in his gospel account. He says... 
I am. That's what he says, okay? Now, I have to be clear. When I'm saying it, I'm not saying it about myself. I'm saying what he said, okay? Because it's a little confusing in the English language. He said, I am. That's a very, very important statement, too, by the way. And for some of you, that might not stand out, but I'm going to go into that in just a second. We say, he is. So if Jesus is saying, I am, then we agree and we say, he is. What does that mean? But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh, cometh to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He is, I am. What is all this? So at the, this location, uh, 1,400 years before the Christ, you have a burning bush. Now, we've brought that up, actually, I think three or four times now uh, in our, our first couple weeks of uh, Daily Thunder. But you have God and Moses uh, having a conversation there at the burning bush. Profound moment in all of history. And in this, Moses has the audacity to ask God, basically, what is your name? Who am I to say is sending me? And God condescends to answer that question. And he gives a name. Isn't that just an amazing thought that God gives himself a name? I am that I am, is what he says. And so this, when, when God gives the law of God, he says, you shall not take the name of the I am that I am in vain. In other words, he makes it very clear, that name that I just gave you, you are not to take it in vain. So the Jews were afraid. They called it the ineffable name. The name you'd never want to transgress. God has entrusted us his name, but we won't even speak it. So the Jews didn't even speak the name. So people don't even know how to pronounce it, literally. It is four letters. That's what it's called. So it looks like Yahweh. That's where you hear Yahweh. Yahweh. It means he was, he is, and he always will be the same. Who God is has always been, is still, and always will be. He has never altered. He never will. That's who he is. That's his proper name. So if you want to get to know him, you better get to know that he is. However, that's how we say it. When he talks, he says, I am. All right, so you need to recognize the difference between how we would say it and how he says it. We must believe that he is. So this is talking about Jesus. You need to know that he is. He was, he is, and he always will be. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is. You see why I'm saying this is a very important foundational point? And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You see, you don't just need to know that he is, but then there's certain things that he always has been. He still is and he always will be. And guess what? That, this is such a beautiful statement. What has he always been, is today, and always will be? He's a rewarder of anyone that would diligently go after him. You go after him and he will reward that. That is part of who he's always been, is today, and always will be. And you can bank on it. God also has highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name, that name should be capitalized. I like putting a capital N on name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love that passage in Philippians, which we don't, we're not gonna get to go into today. But this is what I wanna emphasize. He has been given the name above all names. So just think about that. We have the I am name in the Old Testament. 
the name above all names, okay? I mean, this is God's name that the Jews won't even speak. It is so ineffable. And what does God entrust us? The name of Jesus. As believers, he says, I'm giving you this name. It is the name above all names. And I'm giving you this name. Call upon the name of Jesus. Speak it. Sing it. Shout it. We have been entrusted with the name above all other names, and that name is Jesus. So unpacking the name above all names. So in the Old Testament, remember I went through first and seconds on Monday. Now you would have had to have been here on Monday, so this is going to make all of you that missed Monday feel like, boy, I really need to be here on Mondays. That's, that's what we're trying to do here. And so on Monday, we talked about first and seconds. So uh, Cain, Abel, first. God rejects the first, but he blesses the second. Ishmael, Isaac, rejects the first, accepts the second. Saul, David. Well, we have another one, Moses, Joshua. Moses is symbolic of the law. Joshua is the one that takes the people into the land of promise. And so what we have is a second man with the name Joshua, by the way, which might not stand out to you, but he's the one who stakes claim to the promised land. He's the one that does it. The law can't take you in. You can have the law. The law is good. It is. But it can only show you your need for the second. It can only show you that you need a Joshua. And so I'm going to go into this in a, sec a little deeper layer so you can appreciate it. His name is Joshua. So Joshua is the integration of the four-letter name, the unspeakable, ineffable name amongst the Jews of Yehovah. Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah. If you ever hear the name Jehovah or Adonai, that's the same name, okay? And so if you see all caps, Lord, in the Old Testament, same name. In other words, this is all the same. It's those four letters, the tetragrammaton is what it's called. So it's the combination of that mixed with a super powerful verb. It's an action. This one who was, who is, and always will be the same is going to do something. That is what this name means. And so I'll tell you what he's going to do because it's the verb. It's an action, and it's a powerful one. Hiya! Isn't that a great one for all of us that know karate? Hiya! But it doesn't mean like to cut, you know, to chop a board. It means to be, to exist. So this is the essence of that uh, name of Yahweh. Hiya! And then Yasha. This is the verb. It means to save, to deliver, to rescue. And so when you combine the fact that God was, is, and always will be the same, then the next question is, so tell me about him. What is he always going to do? What is going to be the same about him always? This is an incredible statement. When you get to know it, you're going to understand something about Jesus that is just going to transform your life. So I'm building towards this, though. Moses called Hosea. Do you know that Joshua's name was Hosea? And it says that Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. They're like, well, who cares? Why? I don't know why he's doing that, but he's doing it. Well, there's a, a name change amongst the second man. Listen to this. Hosea means help, save. It's based on that word, that Yasha verb, right? But Joshua or Yehoshua is how they would say it in the Hebrew, means Yahweh saves. The I am saves. That's what the second man is named. This God who will never change will always be the same. There is one thing you can always know about him. He's a rescuer. He will save. Okay, now why does that matter? 
This is the name Jesus was given. The Jews were so concerned about saying the name Yehoshua because it was too close to the forbidden name, to say the proper name of God because they're saying too much in Yehoshua that they actually altered the name. So after the Babylonian captivity, for the preservation of the name amongst the pagan cultures, the name of Joshua was subtly altered. Yeshua, the son of Nun. So the name was Yeshua for Joshua. You know what Jesus' name is in the Hebrew? It's Yeshua. This is his name. So when you see Joshua in the Old Testament and you see the handing off of the first, the law passes off the torch. Jesus, the Jordan River, just remember all the different things that happen in Jesus' life. It's the, John the Baptist passes off the mantle. John the Baptist is the one who is before. He's a first. And then he blesses the second, Jesus who in the Jordan River, it's, the, it's the, the place of separation. Moses couldn't pass that. God says no. It's, it's like, why would he decline Moses from going into the promised land? Because of the symbol of it all. The law can't save. It's only the second, Yeshua, that can. Oh, it's amazing. So in the Hebrew, I am plus the verb to save means, or is translated as Yeshua. In the Greek, this is the New Testament, I am plus the verb to save is Isus. You ever heard that? Isus, that's the name of Jesus in Greek. Okay, now the problem is the Greek doesn't have a, a J sound, right? So when we transliterate it into the English, we get something different. I am and the verb to save is Jesus, <laughs> Jesus. And that's what we say, same name. Okay, this is all the same name. It's just different languages to say the same exact thing. When we say the name of Jesus, we declare he was a savior, he is a savior, and he will always be a savior. You know how exciting that is to your Christian life? You know what the devil will do whenever you stumble and fall and scrape your knee and sin? He'll say, wow, you sure did blow that because Jesus was your savior, but now, no, Jesus is my savior. You see, that's the, the power of the shed blood that we need to understand is that it is present tense that our God saves. God doesn't want us to go out and sin, but if we do sin, we have a mediator with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so as a result, we need to take that sin unto that throne of grace, and we will find that we have a Savior. And in every moment, it's not just that we have a Savior from 2,000 years ago, we have a Savior right now that wants to keep us from sinning. So have you ever had it where you get a temptation and something really juicy is sitting out there, and you have no ability in yourself to stop? Stop right there. You actually have the ability to stop, though, but it's not your ability. It's his ability. It's called grace. And if you will call upon the name of Jesus, he gives you grace to say no to temptation because you have a Savior that is today a Savior. He wasn't just a Savior yesterday. He's a Savior right now. And then you can know, and he'll always be there. That's extraordinary. It's built into his name. So we are saying... The great I am, because he so loved the world, has garmented himself in the body of man that he might save. When God declares his name to be Jesus, he is saying, I am he that saved, is saving, and will always save. Isn't that great? Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, By the way, guys, that didn't go over very well. Uh, back in the day either. Like for us, we're like, what's he saying? You know what he's saying? He's saying he is. 
He's saying that I am the one that was, the one that is, and the one that always will be. And someone could say, I thought you were born in Bethlehem, raised a carpenter, uh, you know, grew up in Nazareth, raised a carpenter. What's the deal with this whole I am thing? And so they picked up stones to stone him because they called it blasphemy, a misuse of the holy name. Who is he to declare that he is God? Well, I would never recommend any of you saying that you're God, unless you're Jesus. You see, Jesus is God. And so as a result, the one that could say this, Abraham was a long time before Jesus, right? I mean, just look at it. I mean, come on. And Jesus says, no, I'm before him, because he was. He's God. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. The apostle John's proclamation. So John, the apostle, throughout all of the book of John, if you read the gospel of John, you're going to see it all over the place. He's basically saying he is, because he's going to give all the quotations of Jesus saying, I am. And so you'll see this, this term in the Greek is ego, I me, which is I am. In Matthew, it's used only four times, Mark and Luke, one, and John, this explosion. John, the entire purpose of the gospel seems to be to show the godness of Jesus. It's like there must have been some discussions and debates and people were starting to question it because John, the apostle John, wrote the gospel of John long after the other three gospels were written. So can't you just see it? The spirit of God is like, it's time. Declare it and declare it clearly. So the apostle John writes the book of John and kaboom, 44 <laughs> times where he makes it clear that Jesus is in fact the I am. I'm only going to give you one of them. I had it actually in my notes to give you all of those, but I knew I was going to be short on time. For if you believe not that I am. See, in the English, we will put a he in there. I made it all small just so you could sort of get the idea. We add a he because it doesn't make any grammatical sense. What, what is he saying? For if you believe not that I am. But, so we say, for if you believe not that I am he, which still works, but it loses the I am side of it. Okay? For if you believe not that I am you shall die in your sins. In other words, this matters, guys. We have to know it's only God that can forgive sins. It's not just merely a good man that died on a cross that can somehow forgive us of our sins. It is God who sent his only begotten son, very essence of who he is, the spirit essence of who he is. The, it is his son, even biologically so, if you want to say it that way who stood in our place and bore that sin, that infamy, that curse, that wrath upon himself so that we can be saved. It had to be God. If you diminish the godness of Jesus, you diminish the godness of the cross. And if you diminish the godness of the cross, you diminish his ability to save. He is the only savior. There's only one way to get to the Father. And that's by Jesus, who is in fact God. Key terms for the day. So I'm just going to more read through these things than I'm going to teach on them. It's, you're going to see the unfolding of the gospel. Life. Life, capital L, life comes from God and God alone. There is no life outside of God. Now, because a lot of us are like, wait a minute, I, I think I have life. Or there's all sorts of... People that don't believe in God that have life, they have mortal life, but they don't have spiritual life. Capital L, life. They have little, small, lowercase l, life. But they don't have capital L, life, because when you give up life or when you forsake life, then what remains is death. 
And so we have capital D, death. So life, what God brings. So if you reject God, you don't have life. It's called everlasting life, eternal life in scripture, but it's God life. You don't have it if you reject God. So all those that have rejected God, all those that are unbelieving do not have capital L life. And what they have is capital D, death. What the devil brings. So the devil loves to bring death. And he's done a good job of it, guys. I mean, he's very good at what he does, very skilled at what he does. And God, in his whole house, created a little trash can for that which is opposite his nature. Just like in your house, you have a trash can. And if someone came to your house and evaluated your house based on what is in your trash can, it would be an unfair assessment. Why is it in the trash can? Because it's not like your house. So as a result, you take everything that is not like your house and you stick it in that can. The same is true with the realm of darkness. God scissor cut out of his kingdom this realm of darkness to stick everything that is opposite his nature, just like a trash can. And in the end, that realm and everyone that's in it will be judged in the lake of fire. And so what we have is life, and God is the king of life, and you have death, and the prince of death, the ruler of death, is the devil. The devil, a brief history, I'm not going to give you a brief history right now because that would be still too long, a brief history, other than the fact to say that he was an angel of God, and he rebelled. There's very little we know, but we do know that he is the antagonist. Even the word Satan means the antagonist or the adversary. He is against all that is godly. Everything that God is trying to do in your life, he stands directly opposed to it. We also have the understanding that he has one-third of the angels that fell with him, that he literally turned their hearts towards, against God too. And so he has limited resource, but he does have resource. And he is aimed directly at destroying the saints of God because he wants to destroy God. That said, Jesus has defeated him. And technically, he has no legal power over anyone that turns their life to Jesus Christ. So that's all part of growing up in the faith of understanding how to live that out. Sin is the twisting of the creation. There was no sin. And then when there was a twisting, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, this perfect good uh, creation of God was twisted. And sin in its very essence is selfishness. So what has happened is Christ was removed, or God was removed from the very center position of his creation, and what happened is it was replaced with self. You. It's about you. And that's how the devil controls us. If he can get us to believe the lie that life is about us, for our glory, our comforts, our pleasures, we live in sin and are dead in sin. But when we believe the truth and put off that, repent of that, and say, no, it's about you, Lord. This is about your, your life. This is about your truth. Then we are saved in the very process. When we agree with God, we, are, we escape the pattern of sin, the power of sin, the hold of sin. Law. So to reveal this sin, because when we're just sitting here on this earth, we don't even know that we're sinners. We don't even know that sin exists. That's how darkened we are. That's how dead we are. We don't even recognize that there is a God, that we're standing against that God. But God loves us. So what does he do? He gives us law. What does law do? It shows us that we're sinners. So he gives us the perfection of behavior. He says, this is how you must live to enter my kingdom. And then we're like, whoa, I, I, I can't do that. He goes, I know. You see, the law teaches us. It says that the law is a schoolmaster which leads us to Jesus. You see, Jesus only makes sense when you recognize, oh, I'm dead. I, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. That's right. That's how it works. So the law is the nature of perfection. Hell it's like the trash can, guys. It's the place reserved for darkness. Judgment, the action of love and holiness. 
You know that judgment is an act of love just as much as it is an act of holiness? God is a holy God. He can't have anything to do with darkness. It's also an action of love. If I love my children, did you know that I will bring correction? Any kingdom that is healthy always has to have justice. If you don't have justice, there's an absence of love. Love and justice are very closely combined. However, as we see in the gospel, mercy still is greater than judgment. So though judgment is a very real attribute, and God is the judge, mercy triumphs, and he has given us a season to repent. He has given us the shed blood of Jesus. He has expressed himself in mercy to us. The promise. So this is a term you'll see throughout Scripture. And the promise, all throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New, is going to be referring to the Christ, to the Messiah. The gospel uh, I'm not going to go through it other than to say that uh, we have uh, a serious issue, a failure. Adam and Eve really blew it. We are now dead. We are in the trash can under the ruler of the trash can. Uh-oh, we have a problem. And the law has awakened us to the fact that we're in the trash can, that we need a savior. And the gospel gives us the out. It gives us the good news that God saw us in that condition and has come up with a rescue plan. And that very rescue plan is himself. The second coming, so that's going to be a term that uh, as a believer you're going to be awakened to and you're going to hear, and there's another promise. Just as we had the promise of the Messiah, we also have the promise that that Messiah will return for us. We are in an age, a period of time, between the coming of Christ in the initial sense and his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and he left us with a promise, and then that is that he will return again for those that believe. And so as a result, we hold tightly and joyfully to that reality that our Lord will in fact return. The situation on this earth, the way it is now, will not remain that way forever. God will in fact bring judgment on this earth in the future, and he will destroy it. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth that will be created. And this is all part of the understanding of what scripture teaches us. But I'm just giving you a, at least a basic introduction to that. It's the grand expectation. So as we go through these things, there's something that I'm going to remind you about every time. And that is to grow as a Christian, you have to have the Holy Spirit. And I've said that every single time I've given this. In other words, there is a default or a, a concept that we so easily slide into, and that is, okay, God, thank you for all that good information. Now I'm going to try and live for you. But you can't do it in and of yourself. It's very frustrating when you think about it. It's like, God, I really want to do it for you. It's, I know. Thank you for that. However, I need to do it for you. You see, how did you get saved in the first place? He did it for you. Well, how do you live saved? He does it for you. That's how you live as a Christian. You need God working on your behalf. That verb, he needs to be the verb inside of your life. He needs to be the one working. You need the Holy Spirit to be able to do this. I've been giving you a key exercise each time. The last one was Bible reading. And, I, and a lot of times people think Bible reading is Bible study. It's not. Or they think Bible study is Bible reading. It's not. But they can't, they overlap, definitely. Like if you're just reading through the Bible, which I'd, I'd say is a tremendous discipline, it's a wonderful exercise, just to have time of reading the Bible, 
to hear it, to listen to it, and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate it to you. There's a difference between that and stopping at every word and checking out what it means in the Greek and the Hebrew, checking out its tense and you know, understanding its context and then doing cross-reference to figure out how that word is used in the rest of the Bible. There's a difference, and both are very healthy. But what I would encourage is for you to begin to implement and exercise both. I can't, it's just a thing on the screen. I'm not gonna teach you how to study the Bible as much as to bring it to the surface to say, this is going to be an important discipline that we want to cultivate, okay? And I would highly encourage you to go through uh, uh, Nathan Johnson's Tuesday class, which is uh, on, it's an expositional study on Ephesians, simply to begin to see and to learn. Nathan also has something called the Saturation Bible Study, where he actually gives you the tools. And those things are available. So if you're interested in those and you can't find them online, please just contact us and we can definitely introduce you to these things so that you can begin to more effectively utilize this in your Christian growth and maturity. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellersley campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.